As Earth Keepers, we hold wisdom about our planet within our bodies learned through lifetimes of experience on Earth and throughout the cosmos. I'm Amy Dempster, a shamanic practitioner and your host for the Earth Keepers podcast, and I'm on a journey to reconnect with my soul family, the other Earth Keepers, grid workers, portal tenders, land stewards, and nature lovers around the world. On this podcast, you won't find gurus or dogma, just a safe space where I share personal stories from my spiritual journey. Hello and welcome back to the Earth Keepers podcast. We've reached the midpoint in season two where we've been talking all about reclaiming our sacred plant partnerships. So if you're just starting with this episode, be sure to go listen to the others after this one. You don't have to listen to the episodes in order. However, you'll find that each episode will build on ideas and discussions in the previous one. Now, at the beginning of the season, we focused more on what happened to humanity to sever our collective plant relationships. And over the past couple of weeks, we've been talking more about finding our way back to the traditions our ancestors would have been familiar with, although in a more modern way that accounts for the world we're currently living in. And today's guest articulates that dichotomy perfectly. Becca Piastrelli is a writer, mother, and host of The Belonging Podcast. You may have come across her beautifully written and illustrated book, Root and Ritual, Timeless Ways to Connect to Land, Lineage, Community, and Self over the past year. And if you haven't, I can assure you, it's just the balm you're looking for as both you and the plants emerge from the winter soil into the spring sunshine. Becca's book will take you on a journey of exploring how we belong to the land, our lineage, our community, and ourselves through thoughtful questions and journal reflections, as well as practical witchery, like remembering food preservation skills, making smoke cleansing bundles, and creating an altar to your ancestors. We cover a lot of ground in this discussion, including how not to turn our backs on the earth as we feel the grief of a changing climate and human destruction of our ecosystems. Learning more about our ancient ancestors and bringing some of their plant traditions into our modern lives and some thoughts about whether or not we should be harvesting plants in the wild. I think you're going to love this thought-provoking discussion. Now, before we jump into our chat, let me just share that if you're feeling called into an even deeper relationship with our allies here on planet Earth, we'd love to have you join me in the Earth Tenders Academy. Reclaiming our ancient ancestral connection with this planet and the spirits of the land and learning to speak their language can bring such a richness to our day-to-day experience here on Earth. If you want to learn more about the history and the energy of the community that you live in, hold space for the healing of humanity and nature, remember more about your specific gifts and role with the earth, and see the true magic held in your everyday environment, I invite you to step into this portal with me and hundreds of other earth tenders from around the world. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about the Earth Tenders Academy and join our beautiful community. And now... Here's my conversation with Becca Piastrelli. Welcome, Becca, to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here today as we've been diving deep into reclaiming our sacred plant partnerships on the season. And, uh, you know, your your book came to me in such a beautiful way, uh, Root and Ritual, and really 
just talks wonderfully about all of these relationships and really reclaiming a lot of our ancestral connections and bringing nature and our connection with the world back into our everyday lives. So welcome. Glad to have you here. So happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Well, let's start with what I've been asking all of my guests this season is tell me some of your earliest memories of plants. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So real talk. (laughs) I'm not, I'm not the person who grew up with, I say like, I didn't have the crinkly eyed grandmother who like taught me the ways of like the plant ancestors. Yeah, no, I grew up in suburban Northern California and there was a tree, an oak tree behind my house that I loved to climb. But twice when I climbed it, I got poison oak once. I got poison oak on my skin. My friend got stung by a bee. And both of those experiences and mostly the like our caretaker's response to those experiences really imprinted a sense of fearing plants and the living world. I also remember at like my daycare that I would go to after school, one of the girls in daycare ate a mushroom that was like growing in the, you know, the lawn, like the soccer field. And everyone freaked out and gave her Ipecac to throw up because it could have been poisonous. And it was really quite traumatic for me to watch. And so I had I mean, if I squint my eyes and look back, I can feel like a wonder with the natural world, particularly because I was really into like fairy tales and I mean, tales of fairies and things like that. But there was a real like overculture of the plant world being unsafe for me and potentially hurting me. So that was hard because I was always drawn to it, particularly trees you know, climbing trees, speaking to trees, but there was always a fear. So it took me until my like early adulthood to come back to the plants and the plants called me back, called me back through tea and through the farmer's market and through like beautifully displayed produce at the market, at the grocery store. Like it just, it was not like a huge moment. It was a slow whisper that turned into like a real magnetism back to plants. And so it's been a relationship of repair for the last, I'd say 15 years of me feeling the ache and pain of being disconnected from the plant world for so long. And that's like the story of humans, of the the severing from the living world that we actually think of nature as outside of ourselves instead of within us. So yeah, it makes me sad to tell that, but it's also the truth. Yeah. And I don't think that your story is probably all that unusual in our current culture that, you know, I think a lot, a lot of people have grown up with that fear or unknowing or just not a lot of interaction or experience with nature and and with the natural world. And so it's just so beautiful how we're called back in such a gentle way with these plants. And I know I've heard you talk on your mention on your podcast that you have an oak tree that is outside your window now. And I have an affinity. I grew up in the foothills of Northern California myself and just absolutely love oak trees. But tell us a little bit about that, that tree and your connection with it now. I'm looking at it right now. I always talk about it <laughs> because, the, because they're here and alive 
Yep. So it's a heritage black oak native to this land that I live on, Coast Miwok land, just north of San Francisco, Marin County. And we're talking just after the spring equinox here in this northern hemisphere. So the and we're north facing hill where I live on a north facing hill. So the sun is always a little delayed arriving. So blooming and bud break is always a little delayed. So the the sun has reached us and the leaves are starting to unfurl and such a great feeling to go after like those witch finger sort of like branchy. I'm using my hands. Like my hand looks like a witch hand, like dangling down. Like that's because it's such an old tree. And then it's like all the little fingers start to like just fill out with beautiful green leaves and the squirrels go nuts. And it's just really special tree. And I, I think about how this tree has been here so much longer than these houses have been here and these roads and these telephone wires and these sirens that blare and these planes that fly overhead and the smoke that we choke on every year now that wildfire season is a part of our lives. And I just look at this tree and I think, you know, this tree has been here a long time. I mean, I mean, I don't know how old this tree is, but I would guess around a hundred years old just by its height. And it's just seen so much and it's still here. And there have been moments where it's almost been cut down because of its location above these telephone wires and how everyone here is just so scared of fire. So am I. And yet this tree is protected as a heritage tree because it's native and it's holding this hill in. This hill slid in 1980. There was a big slide and this tree survived that slide and probably holds the soil together and keeps this hill up and keeps the soil here and whatever is living beneath the soil, their home is intact. So yeah, this tree is really special to me. And it's not even, I own the land, whatever that means, but I paid for the property that I live on in a more permanent way. This tree is not on that property. So I always, there's a feeling of impermanence, like, hello, friend. And also, I don't know what your, you know, the future holds for you. And I just honor you as much as I can. I love that. So beautiful. And just acknowledging these, these tree friends in our landscape that you're right, have seen so many before us and so many changes in their environment and are still there doing, you know, their, their job, doing what, what they can do as part of the ecosystem. And so, so nice that you have, have it right there where you can see it. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it really is that kinship and that relationship and that friendship that we start making with these different plants or trees in our environment. And I, I think it's interesting that you start your book with um, talking about the difference between loneliness and solitude. And that really struck me as how different we feel kind of in our modern world versus being out in the natural world. And can you share a little bit more about kind of that idea and that the difference and, and how we're feeling these days, you know, when it comes to loneliness for, versus solitude? Yeah. So there are some, you know, really prolific thinkers out there talking about us living in the, the Aeromacene, E-R-E-M-O-C-E-N-E. So there's the Anthropocene, this time we're living in where basically history is being influenced by humans and the impacts of the earth is by humans. And then the Aeromacene means age of loneliness that we're also being impacted by a deep sense of loneliness. My, when I first heard that all like 
shiver went down my spine and just a real sense of acknowledgement of, yes, I have felt that I do feel that. And really that's all predicated on the fact that we are more technologically connected than ever before humans. You know, there's just so many ways we can connect to each other all over the world. I mean, that's how you and I are talking right now. How cool. And in the way that we can measure mental health in recent history, there's just a massive uptick in this sense of loneliness that so many humans are feeling. And then, and I, I was learning about this pre-pandemic, then the pandemic hit and hello, you know, we were ordered and chose to be away from each other's bodies and be in our homes. A lot of us have plants in our homes, but away from, you know, a lot of plants. And, you know, there's no judgment on um, if that was right or wrong, but it did have an impact on us, right? It did have an impact on us. So loneliness versus solitude. I think we all sort of know in our bodies the difference, right? Solitude is nourishing. Loneliness is a pain state. And I find as I've been on this little virtual book tour talking about loneliness, I get the like kind of bristly response from our beloved introverts who are like, hey, I like being alone. I'm like, but you know the difference between when it's nourishing you and when it's harming you. Absolutely. And a lot of us have hit that edge, that spiky edge in the last two and a half years. We just did. I mean, I was pregnant, gave birth. It was lonely. It was so lonely. And I, I mean, I'm really extroverty and I have always like had lots of friends and lots of things to go to, but I felt lonely my whole life. And so it's deeper than just like, do you have friends and people to talk to? It's like a sense of unbelonging, a sense of like a lack of kinship, a sense of I am alone here and that doesn't feel right. And so the origins of that there's a historical context within that, not just like, oh, I'm, I'm crap at feeling like comfortable with people. It's like, oh, well, the original sort of severing that created loneliness was in, you know, the capitalist patriarchal domination historical movement to separate human beings from the living world, their source of power. This whole term nature, it's a colonial term. The connotation is separateness, go out into nature as if nature does not live within us, as if we are not of nature itself. So this has been, you know, hundreds of years, meant thousands of generations of this system separating us from the living world, putting us into cities, making us work and the industrial revolution happened. Then we had, and then cars were invented. So we weren't seeing each other on the streets and the commons, you know, we are tribal communal beings. And then eventually now the gold standard of life, at least in the industrialized world is to live alone, live in your single family home alone. I just brushed over a lot of history, but this is all to say this sense you have of not feeling at home in yourself or at home in the living world, at home in friendship and community, at home in your body, at home on earth, like that's because there has been a real severing over many, many generations from our innate ways. So that's what I like to talk about and look at while also being like, the internet's so great because <laughs> I can talk to people and, you know, temperature controlled homes are really nice in the winter and summer and plumbing is great. So there have been improvements and, you know, I don't live on a commune, at least not yet. I live in a nuclear family, single home in suburbia. And I'm interested in ways we can alleviate this sense of loneliness because it's debilitating. 
and come back into a sense of belonging. I'm particularly interested with the living world, with plants, with animals, with stones, with waters, with all the elements. So that's a really kind of long-winded answer (laughs) to your question, but it's a big question when we ask about loneliness. It's important that I share that context, that it's not just like something's wrong with your brain. It's like, no, this is like the water we're swimming in. Yeah. And I think you're right. It's been so long and it's so ingrained in us that the way we are and the way our society is, is somehow the right way. And that if we're feeling out of place or we're feeling unhappy or feeling lonely, that it's somehow our fault or that we're somehow weird or out of touch because we're feeling this way. And, And I think what we really found, and certainly I think you're right, the last two years, that innate need to come back into connection with all kinds of things, you know, and not just finding our way back to nature itself, where, where we belong, where we were always a part of that ecosystem, but to other people and to um, our communities, because I certainly felt that way. I'm, I'm perfectly happy to be in my introvert life most of the time. And, and Mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time, I would say in solitude, you know, with, with the trees or by myself and, without any external, you know, noise of any kind. And I felt it really deeply the the last few years as I felt other people withdraw and other people, Mm -hmm. you know, and I realized even for as much as I enjoy my solitude, I really was missing those community touch in moments and opportunities that were always just kind of a part of my life before and, and really vanished. And it was quite obvious what a big hole we were missing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like to, so like listeners, my hands are at each end of the screen. So it's like, think of like, separate your hands as long as you can. That is the amount of time life has been on earth, right? And then go in a little bit. This is the amount of time humans, as we know them today, have been on earth. And then you go into like the teeniest, like a centimeter between two fingers. That's how long like colonial capitalist systems have been in place, right? When we've been not in the wild, when we've had to work to have a right to live on this planet, when we have been separated from our communal nature, when we're convinced something's wrong with us, when we are ebbing and flowing in ways that aren't like the status quo. So this is just like a blip in the history of life on this glorious, you know, good green planet. So that helps me check myself when I'm feeling these, like, what? It's like, oh, wait a second. This is, you know, I live in this time. And also there are, I can question the ways in which I live aren't serving me. And this is where we can empower ourselves to live a different way. Well, and, and on that note, I mean, what, what does it look like to you? What, what do you think of when you think about reclaiming some of those more ancestral ways and bringing them into this modern world that we do live in? Well, I think the most powerful act we can do is slow down. I know. And so many people were like, tell me the 10 step, the 10 step plan to feeling earth belonging and connection and divesting from the system. And I'm like, no, that's the system telling you it's got to be complicated. It's not so true. <laughs> so earth pace, what is earth pace? That's whatever you're feeling and connecting to with those words, right? It's not the pace of an inbox. It's not the pace of a text message. 
again, I check my text messages in my email, but what does it mean for you to operate at an earth pace? So this is why I talk about seasonal and cyclical living. Like our bodies digest food at an earth pace. They don't digest food at an email's pace, right? Our bodies are not upgrading with the next iOS. Our bodies are ancestral animal bodies that are still attuned to the way our, you know, 20 generations ago, 50 generations ago lived. You know, our bodies digest slower when it gets colder and faster when it gets warmer. We want to sleep more during certain seasons, no matter where you live, even if you live in the tropics and need less sleep during other seasons. There are just so many ways we can remind ourselves of our innate nature. And the best way we can do it is if we can slow down. So that can be really hard for, especially those of us who are quite addicted to the hustle culture, grind culture, or maybe the work we do or the parenting we do is just at a crazy pace. And it's like, well, I can't really opt out. And it's like, okay, but where can you move slower? And I say the first step is actually like practice moving in slow motion when you see yourself rushing. Can you literally slow yourself down and be like, this is the pace of the earth, like a slow life, look slower, savor the senses of it. Don't respond to emails immediately or text messages immediately. Give others permission to do that too. That's a radical revolutionary act. I think in these times, primarily number one. But to, and yeah, and ask your, your body what it needs, right? There's this whole, like, thanks to Trisha Hersey of the NAP ministry, like there's a real rest movement happening right now. Take that into however you can, you know, and all of us have different levels of privilege and trauma and all of that. But that's why I always start there, you know, like if you can then take it a step further and like put your bare feet on the earth and touch a tree every day. Okay. Do you have plants you can tend to? Yeah. There are all these ways, but the primary and most effective tool at our fingertips is slowing down. Yeah, I so agree. And I think it's the first thing I always share with people too, when they say, how can I talk to a tree? Or how can I talk to a plant? And it's just, we just move so fast because really the natural world is speaking to us all the time in such a subtle way that when we move fast and we talk fast and we, you know, do everything fast, we just completely miss it because it's not a flashing neon sign, you know, right, right in front of us on the trail. So and just such beautiful wisdom to really bring that into every part of our lives. And <sighs> yeah, to see your blood is like the xylem and phloem and the sap, you know, like I just think about sap rising, sap falling, right? Like those two energies of the year moving upward toward the solstice and then downward towards the solstice and like the sap of a tree. You think sap's running? No, no. You know, and yeah, you can, you can tune into like squirrel energy. Sure. <laughs> but there's also times when they rest and there's also times when yeah night comes and they're not putting on artificial lights and checking their emails. I say that it sounds silly, but it really does help to just speak to the absurdity of some of the ways we live. When you remember that we have animal bodies and we're of the earth and we are like of the plants, we're of the mushrooms, we're of the stones, we're of stardust, you know, we are one in the same with this world. Yeah, it's so true. And we really have created all of these artificial surroundings. And then we wonder why we're <laughs> moving so fast and overstressed and yeah. overtaxed on our nervous system. Yeah, our nervous systems were not designed to handle this much input. 
We're not designed for a feed that you scroll. They just weren't designed. So it's like, there's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> You're feeling like I can't. It's like, oh, we have ancient animal nervous systems. Well, speaking of ancient nervous systems, ancient connections, you tell an interesting story in your book about reconnecting with the, I think it was called the clan mother related to your mitochondrial DNA that you were able to do after doing a particular ancestral DNA test. So can you tell us a little bit about that story and what you found out, how you made that connection? Mm -hmm. It's so cool. Yeah. So this is based on the works, the work of Christopher Sykes, who was a DNA geneticist at Oxford University in the UK. And he has written many books. One is called The Seven Daughters of Eve. So this is based on his work. So like many of us, I took one of those spit tests Mm -hmm. many years ago to be like, where are my people from? And it was cool. And I learned some things and some things I, you know, knew already, whatever it is. But what was really interesting is through your mitochondrial DNA, mitochondria help your cells breathe. It's an element. I don't know if we can all remember back to when we like made a model of a cell. One of those things in there was mitochondria. Mitochondria helps the cell breathe. And mitochondrial DNA also has like basically a tracker that can track every cell relative before it. It basically holds DNA information from the original cell. So if you're, if you're listening right now and you also have test results, you can usually get a haplogroup, a DNA haplogroup that is assigned. And it's usually like letters and numbers. And this is given from your mitochondrial DNA. So I am a white woman. My ancestors are all from what is now known as Europe, the continent of Europe. And so Christopher Sykes' work is primarily for people who have European ancestors. So you might not identify as white, but if you have European ancestors and everyone around the world has the haplogroup that tracks to their original mother. We all come from the mitochondrial Eve, which is like the first, it's an African woman, the first woman. This is maybe veering into religion territory, but I will just say from a genetic genetic standpoint. Yeah. But then from there, migration of humans all over the world. And so folks who have European DNA, there are seven haplogroups. There are seven Christopher Sykes, Dr. Sykes tracked DNA to seven regions of what we call Europe today. So there's seven original clan mothers for those of us who are descended from those lands. And he gave them each a name that corresponded with the letter that the haplogroup spits out. So, and you can also Google this. And I have a link actually I can share with you that you can put in the show notes. Oh, perfect. I'll do that. Where I share a bit more about this. So I had haplogroup H. And so Dr. Sykes named her Helena. And he even went as far as to describe potentially like what her life would have been like. So this is like receding ice age. So the ice probably covered most of Europe at that time. So it's tracked to like Southern France today, but that it would be like reindeer hunting, cold, just like described what her life would have been like. And that she is the original grandmother of my line. And then there are there are ones from all over. And if you get too heady about it, you miss the magic. Uh, yes. The magic <laughs> is 
that we come from a long line of human beings, millions, millions, and they all lived however they lived. And you're alive now because they lived. If you decide to do a DNA test, you can look up your mitochondrial haplogroup. And it's just a letter and numbers, but that letter and number is a human. It is a human being that lived on earth when it looked completely different, completely different. And what did they eat? And what plants, what trees were there? You know, this was ice age, a receding ice age Europe. It was boreal forests, very different from how it looks now south of France. Do you think of that? No, but, but, you know, climate changes and trees fall and humans move and they farm. And, and it's just a really special, uh, when I could attach to Helena, haplogroup H, it gave me a deeper sense of not being alone, of kinship, of a lineage, of a line of grandmothers and grandfathers, grandfolk that lived in wild times, lived with the earth. And here I am now. It's really remarkable to think about. And it really gives some context that these were real people, right? Sometimes it can feel very, very hard to make those connections as to, to who these people really were. And it's interesting. As soon as I read about it, of course, I reached out to my mom. My parents have done tons of, of research and she's taken the, the DNA test. And unfortunately, she went back and looked. I don't know if it was at the time or the particular test she did, but it didn't have the mitochondrial DNA. She would have to do it. Another one. Oh, I know. I was like, no, it. <laughs> However, they're all, they're all spitting it out now. Yeah, I was going to say it's probably much more common. I think it was years ago when when she did it, and so. But yes, I, I through my spiritual work and you know connecting with with my ancient ancestors through meditation and journey, I have those connections back to you know really a lot of Scandinavian. Uh, mm-hmm. type ancestors. And I actually shared in another episode this season um, about the time that the land bridge was still there and, and mm-hmm. you know, our ancestors would have been walking back and forth seasonally from Scandinavia to uh, to the UK type of an area. And really what a, when you talk about climate change, especially what a dramatic change that would have been, right? To suddenly be cut off, to suddenly have the seas rise and be cut off from those, those ancestral uh, homelands and really thinking about what a dramatic change in that lifetime for that group of people to have lost that. But it was probably, I don't know if it's the same, the same Helena H group or not, but sounds like similar, similar areas, if not. And it really does kind of make their stories and and their lives a lot more real to us today to learn some of those things. Yeah. Oh, you know, you're, you're landing something for me, just like deep in my soul when you're talking about we were talking about the land bridge. I remember I was in Ireland on ancestral pilgrimage and there's a belief that the Giant's Causeway in Northern Ireland once connected to Scotland, right? And it's debated, but it could also, it also feels like there's evidence there and they're also finding dinosaur fossils. It's so interesting. And, and it was this really powerful moment where I just thought about like how the earth has shifted so much over time. And then you're talking about like, our ancestors contending with shifting climate and how we are now those ancestors, right? Contending with shifting climate for a different reason, right? Us. I, know, I just got chills when you said that. Yes. <laughs> and that's, it's really intense, right? But it's something I really want to be talking about, particularly for folks who talk about ancestral ways and seasonal living, you know, like what are seasons now? What are the seasons? Look, our like fall for us now is wildfire smoke choking on the air staying inside. Like, that's our ancestral experience of autumn here. 
right? And there was something about the way you talked about tuning in. I was, I just imagined Helena and her children watching the seas rise and the ice melt, you know, and then just imagining my ancestors who lived in Ireland and all the trees in Ireland were basically cut down by the British. And like, that's not climate change, but that's humans impacting the earth and, and how we are in that moment now, right? We are in that moment now where we're watching the landscape and the climate and our experience of the earth change. And I notice that that in myself creates a paralysis of a real, a doom feeling, which I will not make wrong, right? That's, that's a response, but that I don't want to lose my relationship with the earth in this time. Like that's in a form of abandonment, a paralysis. Like, you know, when we freeze, we abandon ourselves, right? In moments, this is my question of myself is how can we stay in relationship? I will gender her with her because it feels like a her to me. How can I stay in relationship with her as we navigate another shift instead of that idea of it just lights out, which is the fear. Like our ancestors navigated massive, massive shifts on earth. You know, think about Pompeii going up, you know, or Krakatoa. I mean, I was hearing about, was it 530 AD when this ash from a volcano, I'm forgetting where, created like a three-year winter because the sun was so blocked out and somehow enough of us survived. Like we're in this moment, you know, we're meeting a moment and how can we stay with the trees and the plants and the animals through it with it? Yeah. And, you know, I think while I hear you say that too, I think about the idea that you also mentioned in your book, you call it mythic time, but really this, you know, idea, and I share a lot about it too, about, you know, how timelines, you know, are really working and how so much of time is happening at the same time. And so, you know, can we then connect to those ancestors who are experiencing a similar but different, right, uh, climate change and or, or living in a different type of time where they're adapting in a different way than we are, but all dealing with similar effects. And how can we kind of pull that thread across time and space to make those connections and learn from each other? And it, it would be an interesting kind of meditation to do and, and make that connection. Oh, wow. Beautiful connection. Wow. Yes. I love how you even used your tenses by saying, you know, a long time ago, we have people who are going through something and this whole idea, it sounds like your audience is familiar with linear time being a construct. Very much. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So yeah, a long time ago, our ancestors were navigating a three year winter and here we are navigating a shifting climate. Here I am navigating increasingly intense fiery autumns. How can we lean on each other through the ethers, right? To find resilience in these times and to stay connected to all that is alive and all that is dead and all that is cycling through those two things. Beautiful. Thank you. Please do that journey. Please do that. (laughs) I will. (laughs) We all need it. We all need it. Yeah. 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 No, I, it's, I hadn't really thought about it in those terms before. So thank you for for sparking that as well. It's being able to make those connections. I Mm -hmm. just think there's so much to learn. And I I feel like we can, you know, kind of shift and change each of those timelines by by doing some of that work. So 
would be yeah. curious to to do as well. Well, shifting shifting gears just a little bit, <laughs> but staying on the idea of lineage and really making those connections. I mean, how how would you suggest that we make some of those specifically plant connections that are within our lineage and really work with some of the wisdom of the plants uh, that our ancestors would have known in in this timeline that we're now living in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, not all of us have the data, right, on our ancestors and what lands they lived on. And so this can be done in different ways. But I think it's so important, particularly those with the data of like the lands our ancestors lived on. Like you mentioned Scandinavia. I mentioned modern day France. I know the British Isles. Like what for us to look to, because most, if not all of us don't live on those ancestral lands anymore for many reasons. Mm-hmm. We live on lands that are not our ancestral home. And so I don't want to discount getting to know and love the plants of the lands we're living on now. And I think a really important part of the land reconnection journey is to research the native plants of the lands our ancestors are from. And you can, you know, look into ethnobotany. There's so much data you can, you know, I highly recommend talking to a librarian in a library physically. Uh, the internet isn't always the best place, but it also can be. And if that feels right to you, you can get seeds or grow them in your garden or eat them. For a lot of us, there are a lot of, you know, like non-native and ancestral plants and trees living on the lands we live on, right? I, where I live, there's eucalyptus everywhere. That's Australian <laughs> and was brought over and it's like an invasive species. And I'm like, oh, it needs our love. <laughs> it needs our love too. But I've been really interested in the potato. I've been really diving into potato farming of my Irish ancestors. And the potato is actually not even native to Ireland. Potato is native to South America. And so like, okay, huh, what is it to be in relationship with a potato and how it nourished my ancestors in desperate times? Then who brought it over where? And, and it's a really long and twisty tale to be in relationship with the plants of our lineage. And like, what does it mean to take on a plant in your lineage story that maybe isn't of that land, but I find it to be really deep. And I, I know that what really got me started on that journey was really understanding the history of white sage in this country, this country being the United States, right? And being someone who, who had a deep practice of burning, of cleansing spaces with white sage, and then having an understanding that white sage is native to this land and not native to the land my ancestors are from, it being over foraged and on the watch list for the United Plant Savers. And that this tradition of smudging, which is a deeply sacred ceremony to indigenous folks of this land, Turtle Island, North America, that I didn't have that practice. And my ancestors, if they practiced cleansing with plants, it probably wasn't white sage and it definitely wasn't called smudging. And so I got really interested in what plants did they use to cleanse? What did they call it? Then I got interested in the practice of saining coming out of Scotland and how cleansing and clearing rosemary is and how cleansing and clearing mugwort is. And then being like, I'm going to grow mugwort. I'm going to dry mugwort. Oh, look at this silvery underlayer of mugwort that reminds you of the moon. And oh, it's actually, it has a folk name that has to do with the moon. 
And that got me into such a deeper relationship with it than just like, oh, what do you do when you want to clear a space, burn white sage, you know? And I'm not saying it's not okay to burn white sage, but I'm giving that as an example of a way for me to get into deeper relationship and integrity with the practice of working with a plant to clear energy. Yeah, it's such a it's such a good discussion because it goes so much deeper into those relationships and takes us on a journey that that we couldn't have imagined. And I I do think that that's some of our modern culture, right? With every bit of information we could ever want being at our fingertips, that we want the quick answer, right? You want to you want to Google herbs for cleansing? Oh, there it is. <laughs> Done. Off the list. I got it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, as opposed to saying, you know not only what did my ancestors do, but what things make my home feel the best, you know, what, yeah. what energies feel the, the best to me and what plants can help do that. And really taking the time yet again, working at that, that slower pace to really experiment as our ancestors would have done, right. As they, Earth they were in the world, <laughs> they would have, they would have come into, you know, relationship with those plants and, and figured out what their, what their special qualities were. Yeah, I think probably the work I'm picking up on the work you do, it's really, really needed is for us to slow down and really allow the plants to interact with us and allow us to interact with the plant. And I will just like calm myself out is when I was like in baby witch stage and just getting into it. And I was really into the aesthetic. That's what called me, right? There's the beauty, Instagram and Pinterest. This was like early 2010s, late 2000s, where it was like, I wanted to feel like a magical cottage witch. I wanted to feel like, you know, the like Claire and Outlander, you know, I wanted to feel like it. And so I played it and I would Google herbs for cleansing. I would Google herbs for digestion. It was actually kind of dangerous what I was doing because I wasn't in relationship. And I think that's just like a byproduct of the internet era that I really hope that anyone who's listening, who's curious about plants, can check themselves on. I mean, I had a teacher just call me out and say, Hey, no, you're not in relationship. Are you bathing with these plants? Are you drinking them? Are you sleeping with them? Are you, do you understand the contraindications of it? Like where are your ancestors from and what did they, and I just was like, Oh no, I'm Googling. And then I'm doing, I have so much compassion for the parts of us that just want the answer. I have so much compassion for the parts of us that are uncomfortable and have the curiosity and have a hard time with being imperfect in action. But I'm really grateful to have been called out by that teacher. And I'm really grateful for the reminder all the time that the plants are operating on a different plane from the internet waves. <laughs> that, and yet uh, they're using the internet waves to call to us. You know, I think. I exactly. Think you know, like, it, although it feels like this kind of, it was the aesthetic that was calling you. It was probably something much more deep down, you know, a remembrance of, um, it was of a remembrance. That, that life. And so, yeah, it's however we get onto the path. It's just beautiful to see how the plants lead us deeper into that knowledge and that wisdom. Yes. Yes. And I think I was responding to that call from the only place I knew to be in. And this is what I want to encourage all of us to do is like be IRL, be in real life with plants. And it's like, for some people it might be like, duh, of course, but for a lot of people, I'm talking to you because it's the former me is of like, get it's out of your comfort zone, but it's your original home. If you can slow down, you can feel that. And it feels 
so good, so much better than all the other things you're doing to soothe yourself. Yeah. And I, and I think some of, you know, the, the wanting the knowledge, right. And wanting that instant information or wanting to know the answer, I think is just another piece of this society and this culture we live in where we're, yeah. you know, they, we've been trained to just like, you know, generations before us that there are questions and there are answers. And all you need to know yeah. is the answer to the question. And that that's it. And yeah. you're right. When you work with plants and, and you come into this relationship with the earth, you find, you say, you know, mugwort isn't just beautiful for cleansing, but it also has this connection to the moon. And then it probably has some other things that are very specific and unique to you that wouldn't transfer to me. And, and so it's really beautiful to see how that all comes together when, when we take the time to get to know some of these plants. Oh my gosh, that reminds me, I had this amazing teacher. Do you know Mila Prince, the woman who married the bear? I don't. I think she dropped off the internet. She's like real deal, lives in a yurt on an island in the Pacific Northwest. She's Finnish. Mila Prince. Writing she'd it down. Be a, she'd be a good interview, I'll tell you. And I'll, I'll link her in the show notes for everybody. Yeah. She's Finnish and Palestinian, and she really talks about ancestral herbalism. And I took an in-person course with her at a gathering called Spirit Weavers up in Oregon that happens every summer. And we were talking about ancestral connection to her plants. And she was really enforcing, like, it's a relationship with another being we like remove the animism from our whole lives, right? So that we can, we can dominate, right? We could, what is this? Like pick the flower because it's pretty and will look good on our table instead of seeing the flower as a being, right? As someone who has flowers on our table right now. So I remember she said, you know, the next time you see a plant and think, what is it good for? You know, like rosemary, what is it good for? Headaches, clearing, cleansing? you know, protection. She said, think about this. What is your grandmother good for? Mm. Remember she said it so hard, like, just like, she's like that. She said, what's your grandmother good for? Is she good for headaches? Is she good for protection? What is she good for? What's her use? And I was like, oh, oh, it's a whole being. Plants are whole beings. Why are we taking this allopathic look at them? Even in the herbalist community, right? Of being like, Three sprigs of rosemary to cure your headache. Right. Who is rosemary? Who are they? There's so much more than that. So I wanted to share that. Well, thank you. That that is beautiful. And it it really does put that in a different perspective, even though I think probably most all, you know, everybody listening understands this relationship yeah. piece, but it really does when you kind of, you know, humanize them <laughs> in that way, yeah. the, it, it does put it in a different perspective. Yeah. Animate them and animist, right? This whole idea of everything, having a soul being alive in some way, how, how would we treat our bodies, our homes, each other, our gardens, the paths we walk and hike our front yards. If we could be in an animist perspective, if we could see it all as living, you know, all the time, it's hard. It turns off all the time. And me coming back to it is like, Oh wait, Oh wait, Oh wait, you're a being. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so beautiful. Well, and and thinking about that, share a little bit more with us about, you know, respectfully harvesting wild plants and and wild crafting as as it is and your your experiences with that. Yeah, so the book is divided into four sections, land, lineage, community and the self and we're diving a lot into land here, which feels appropriate. And 
in the land area, in the land section, I do talk and I have sort of like a list of like the basics of ethical wild crafting or wild foraging. And the last one I say is consider not doing it at all and actually just growing everything you want to collect. And so I feel like maybe in this community, you've had people to talk about foraging and, you know, only foraging, you know, what is in abundance and never taking too much so that it can still thrive and all of these things and having a, you know, a positive plant ID and all of that. And again, this teacher, Mila Prince said, consider before you just run to, oh, let's go forage to think about like, what if I just grow it? And so that just felt like it wanted to come through. I mean, I'm going to go collect miners lettuce from the open space hill right after this. So, but I, that idea has given me a different perspective on on just like, yeah, my ancestors would collect and forage, but what would it mean if I focused primarily on growing, you know, instead of just like tomatoes everywhere in my garden, just for those of us who have a garden, like, what would it mean if I planted seeds of mugwort? What if it, what would it mean if I planted, I planted nettle, you know, nettles all around here, but it's like, I am going to grow my own nettle. And I think that can be, for those that resonate with it, a practice of really being in deep, deep, deep tending in relationship with plants and, you know, seeing their purpose. I also think about how, like, particularly with the miners, lettuce and chickweed popping up everywhere, how, like, it's really for the deer here. There's so many deer and they were here before us. And they're just like navigating all these, all these like suburban development of homes are just trying to eat. And what if I could be like, okay you have this salad bowl right now. And what if I look and grow elsewhere? So I offer that to be a part of the wild foraging, wild crafting conversation of, do we always need to, should we go out and pick? And could we maybe reduce that? Because there's a lot of us doing it now. Yeah, it's, we forget sometimes, I mean, I don't know what the number is, what, 7 billion people on the planet now or something, right? It was, we put a significantly different stress on the environment than we used to a hundred or a thousand or 3000 <laughs> years ago. Yeah. But there's, there's actually a book I've, I've mentioned before that's specific more to my area, but I wonder if there's others in, in different areas called the eco herbalist handbook. And it's written Ooh, by yeah. an herbalist who really did just notice the stress and the pressure over a number of decades of foraging and decided to write something, a field guide from the perspective of what's abundant and how yes, can we yeah. use the things that are abundant and back to getting to know the whole plant, right? Is that I think a lot of times it's people are working off a list. These are the things I collect for these purposes, but there are many other plants that could maybe fill some of those same roles that are much more abundant in our environment. Mm. And so even thinking about it from, from that perspective, I think is, is really interesting. And I do think a lot of us can grow a lot, you know, not everybody everywhere, but many people have the, have the opportunity either in their gardens or their, their front yards or their backyards or their, <laughs> their yeah. back pasture or whatever the case may be to grow a lot of these, their native mm-hmm. plants. They want to, they want to grow here anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I think we have to remember that more than human beings also relying on these plants, right. Yeah. It's an ecosystem that is not just for us by us. And I just know, like, I live in such a foodie area, like rains come and the mushroom hunts are on, like the mycological societies here. And like, I get it, right? Mushrooms are so exciting, but it's like, who else 
is benefiting from those mushrooms. Like we need those spores. We need like, and what's happening underground that's needed for them to fully like live their life cycle. So yeah, a lot of this process of remembering that we belong to the land is also remembering that the land is not just for us to consume. It's humbling and sometimes like, well, what? But like, that's the process, step back, right? And see us in a whole web of life. Yeah, I have a very abundant morel patch on my property that I'm oh. very lucky to have. Uh, yes. and, but I'm also very aware of all of the other creatures that I share it with because I'll I'll go out there every few days or every time after it rains around the time that I know and you can say, oh, there was a squirrel here, there was a deer yeah. here, there was a chipmunk chewing on this one. So there's, yeah, always, even if we don't see them, many others were, were sharing. <laughs> yes, sharing. You're all sharing it. Yeah. That's communal mindedness. It's stepping out of this individualist look at life that so many of us, even if we're unconscious to it, we're appropriating, right? We're in that space of thinking about what's mine, what's for me, how we are sharing this earth with others. Well, one more thing I want to touch on before, before we wrap up here, really going from the foraging discussion into to food directly is just really your thoughts around you know, cooking some of these foods, whether it's foraged or from our garden or, you know, making some of those, the ancestral connections that we do have towards some of those foods and just the experience of bringing plants into our homes and into our bodies in that way. Oh yeah. In the book, I share some recipes. I I share activities and recipes, rituals. And in the land section, we talk about making, you know, fragrant flower water, like rose water. Um, And I also talk about food preservation, which I think is a skill we all need to come back into remembrance for like pickling, canning, drying, all these ways that we can be in relationship with food and be in relationship with the food that grows. Like, here's the thing. Food is grown from the earth. (laughs) Can we remember that? Food is grown from the earth. So, So, right. So cooking and taking that in right? Being nourished by the earth. It's a sacred act. And so a lot of us are like, wow, what to eat? You know, we move quickly, but how can we bring, even if it's one meal a day, we can bring an earth pace to cooking our food and honoring every ingredient and saying a blessing, thanking every being that brought it to our plate and put it in our body. Yeah. I think it's, it's so powerful. I mean, right now I'm really excited about making pesto with all these spring greens that are popping up here after we've had a few rains, which are really exciting for us that you know, the chickweed going and I love making chickweed pesto and then like putting it on everything and nettles. I love free, I freeze nettles and then I make nettle soup. And that feels like such, I don't know, there's some magic in it, right? Like this from the hill and we're eating it, which is like, <laughs> what our ancestors did all the time, but there's something, yeah. Like I know that we can go to a grocery store, but there's something about bringing food that we take from the earth, right? Like pick or pluck or dig up and then get to our plate. You know, that feeling, right? Like I grew this or I picked this. Wow. It's another way. Like you asked at the beginning, like how can we get into deeper relationship? That's a great way to remember that we are of the earth and the earth can sustain us and that we sustain the earth. It's just such a beautiful thing. I feel it when they like pull up a beat. I'm like, wow, you were 
growing beneath the surface of the earth and look how big and beautiful you are. And I'm going to lovingly prepare you. Like I tend to do it differently than the bead. I just haphazardly got out of the bin at the grocery store, which I probably should be gentler with, but there's something about seeing that part of the life cycle that feels like it does slow me down and brings me into a place of reverence. I'll never not be amazed by you know taking something out of out of the garden, harvesting something, and feeling like this was a seed, you know, yeah, months ago, and and thinking about that time and that you know devotion of really going from seed all the way to harvest and and, and back to seed and back to seed. I'm again. very interested yeah. in trying to be in the practice of seed saving, even just like from my farmer's market tomato, like, oh, here's a seed. This can start. And this, and the seed holds, talk about mitochondrial DNA. The seed yes. holds literally all the DNA from the first tomato that ever was. And they're all being passed down. This is why heirloom seeds and heirloom tomatoes and, or heirloom foods are just like, there's something encoded in there and that we are the seed too. And yeah. so to save a seed is to also be engaged. It's lineage work. It's remembrance work. And that, you know, if you're cutting open your squash for dinner, like set those seeds aside and grow in yourself and honor the lineage of that squash. It's really such a beautiful practice. And, and I actually participated in a seed saving workshop recently and, and they kind of made the, the cutoff of, I think, I think they said, if you were under the age of, of 70, likely nobody has taught you how to save seeds, right? That wasn't something you for sure how to do. And if you were under the age of fifty, it's possible you did, haven't even had the experience of, of growing your own plants in in a garden, and wow. realize really how sh- again how short of a blip that is for us to yeah. um, lost that knowledge. And and so making that connection that that learning how to save seeds and and bringing that tradition back is really reconnecting with our ancestors, even as recently as, you know, two generations ago. Mm -hmm. And that we can, yeah, like it's worth our time and energy to regain that knowledge. Yeah. I I find, you know, our like quick fix instant gratification generation that I'm definitely claiming I'm a part of, like can get really frustrated and like, ah, can I have a, I have a brown thumb or whatever. Like I can just like, (laughs) it's worth, it's worth sticking with it. It's worth right. sticking with it to regain that knowledge because that's that's what's going to help us navigate these times, right? And then we need our descendants to know too. Yeah. We need to be the ones to pass that knowledge on. Yes. Well, thank you so much for this beautiful conversation. I'm so happy that you were able to join us here and let people know where they can connect with you and find your book and where you're at on the internet. Well, I love this conversation. Thank you for going in every direction. I wildly took us in. It was such a pleasure to talk. Thank you for your work and for talking about this and to your community for being in this conversation. It's so vital in these times. And if you're interested in hearing me wax on more about this sort of stuff, I have a podcast too called Belonging. It's um, the one that's not a mega church. You can also look up Belonging Becca. Usually they'll find me. It's a red the podcast artist read the wreath, you'll know it when you see it. And yeah, I wrote this book. It's called Root and Ritual, Timeless Ways to Connect to Land, Lineage, Community, and the Self. And it's out everywhere. It's got a beautiful green cover covered in plants and bones and mushrooms. And yeah, I really meant it to be something that is a spell that draws you into a deeper relationship. And
and remembering of your innate ways. So if you're interested, you can pick that up. Thank you so much for being here and we'll see you out on the internet. Okay. That internet. We love that internet. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to the Earth Keepers podcast. I'm so honored to share this journey with you. I would love it if you join me and other Earth Keepers from around the world in the Following Hawks Earth Keepers community on Facebook. To find the show notes, additional resources, or learn more about working with me, go to earthkeeperspodcast.com. Until next time, I'll see you in the multiverse.